Welcome back to Stars Like Us. My name is Aliza Kelly, and I am delighted to be here today meeting for the first time the incredible author of the recent book, Cat Call, also the author of Witches, Sluts, Feminist, Kristen Soleil. It is so nice to finally meet you. So awesome to be here. I'm such a fan of your work. Oh, we, you. as we, we know so many of the same people, but like all things, it's sometimes it like your orbits are crossing and crossing and then finally totally. connect. And this is the time. This is it. <laughs> this is the moment. Thank you for being here. Um, for our listeners who are being introduced to you for the first time, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about who you are, how you got started doing what you do and and a little about your own mythology, I suppose. Sure. Um, so I'm a writer, curator, educator, really working on the intersections between art and sexuality and a culture in all its many forms. Um, I'm also a professor at the New School, and I've been teaching a class called The Legacy of the Witch for the past five years. And that's kind of how my uh, book saga begins. So I was teaching this class on um, the sex positive feminist history of the witch archetype or how you can use the witch archetype to learn about feminist thought and feminist action throughout the past however many hundred years. And because of that, I eventually started writing Witches, Sluts, Feminist because there wasn't a concise uh, book that encapsulated all the things I wanted to address in class. So I thought I should just write it. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then from there, it, I've been a cat person my whole life. And um, you are right now wearing a, <laughs> a, a a cat print sweater, which is perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> uh, perfect. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah, this came out of Cat Call because cats are an intimate part of uh, the witch identity, the slut identity and the feminist identity in all in so many ways. And I just didn't want to throw just throw cats into the first book. Cats need their own book. For so, sure. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, that's where I'm at now. And before that, um, let's see, I grew up with a father who was an atheist, a mother who was a witch. So that was, um, I was always thinking about the nature of uh, existence and what is real and what is not and spirituality and uh, identity and ontology and all those things. So, so first of all, what's your sign? I'm a Capricorn. Amazing. <laughs> Hard working Capricorn bitch. I love yeah. it. So you and where did you grow up? Uh, Washington D.C. And what does it what did it mean that your mom was is a witch? So she doesn't didn't use that word. She kind of uses it now, but it, that wasn't a word you could really use. An intuitive, yes. really. And she had gotten certain gifts from her mother, and just things that would pop into her head that she would say, "Things will happen to you." I get feelings about this or that, and sort of second sight, some call it, you know, um, and some other people would just say she's crazy. Uh, she's not, <laughs> but so there was that sort of a lot of magical thinking and being. And then my dad is just a strict, like positivist, like science. That's all the, all the world is, is what you can see and prove through the scientific method. So, so how did, what was their rapport? How did they find? Well, they got divorced pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so yeah, that left me in, I, I kind of jumped back and forth between those poles of belief. And I still think that informs my work a lot because I like to take different subject positions because I I can't ever really land on one like whole, wholeheartedly, 100%. There's always the, but what if, you know? Totally. In either way. And I think that's good, but I am jealous of people who have 
like certainty about their one belief that they will not waver from their whole life. There's that seems comfortable and nice, but I it does. I also I'm with you on that. Yeah. Where I just I'm always questioning yeah, everything. Yeah. So I yeah I I don't feel as soon as uh, I I feel like I have something figured out immediately I am able to refute it. Yep. And I think that that's that's kind of the way that you set up the structure for this book catcall mm-hmm. in the introduction. You're like cats aren't linear. Mm -hmm. This book is not linear. Like this book is going to move like a cat in this very sort of unpredictable way. And, and it, it does. I really appreciate how you, um, have, there are so many different symbols and, uh, pieces of iconography that you pull in because cat is, you know, as sort of the symbol and as and as an icon is so multifaceted. Absolutely. In the same way that our philosophies surrounding these things can be so multifaceted. I think that it's interesting that the you sort of the quick explanation of your father was him as an atheist because obviously, you know, some people maybe grew up in with very strict um, religiosity with mm. parents who are, you know, have had their strong belief systems in a higher power, mm-hmm. but almost in a way, being a fervent atheist is the same it as is. being a fervent Catholic or a Orthodox yeah. Jew or something, it's right? Inflexible. It's inflexible. Yeah. yeah, I get. I I agree that there is no you know white bearded man oh, in God. the sky. No, of course not. <laughs> but I also like I don't know like I didn't grow up in a household that had that I was afraid of the devil. Hmm. I was afraid of going to hell. So to me like that that was that was always cooler iconography yeah. to me. It, it, it didn't seem like it was evil. It just was like sort of like that seems like where the party is at. I don't know. I'm there with you 100%. <laughs> Suffice it to say all of these things are really um complex and I do think that something that you have explored in in at least these two books that you have that you kind of back to back turn them out, which is really amazing is reclaiming and retelling and making sure that we really understand how um, the word witch and the woman has been so weaponized. Absolutely. All of these years. Um, Could you speak more to what you have found in your own research of that journey? Yeah, I feel like um, we can go back a very long time and see that uh, disparaging of the feminine and women and female sexuality, however you want to define that. It's always been weaponized, like you say, and uh, uh, disparaged and policed. And whether that be through um, patriarchal religions or government, it's the same sort of process, right? And that um, is woven throughout the story of the witch and the witch archetype. The witch archetype wouldn't exist without that because, yes, there's that female power archetype that's associated with goddesses that's, you know, maybe more on the quote-unquote positive or light uh, spectrum. And that's that's not that's one aspect of the witch, but that's not the witch. The witch is the witch because there's this darker, unknown, often some say negative, um, evil uh, valence that was created by these patriarchal systems. So Mm -hmm. you can't talk about the witch without that side too. Right. So the witch wouldn't be the witch, you know, without um, that oppression and that suppression of a variety of uh, feminine energies and sexualities. Right. So like is in our understanding of the witch, is the witch uh, a construct of the, is the witch just inherently the, the, 
patriarchy's definition of a powerful woman? Did they, is that, is that how the witch even came to be in the first place? Well, uh, that's a tough one because in the one sense, yes, but then the witch is beyond archetype in many senses into some sort of like primal, uh, creative magical force that sort of transcends that earthly uh bullshit so right totally i would say yes on the one hand but there's more right you know but yes for discussion's sake i think yeah our ideas of the witch certainly are are defined unfortunately a lot by patriarchal definitions something i think is interesting um that i became aware of in recent years is that during the reformation that really the the iconography of the devil the horned beast came to be and it was directly taken from already the the pagan pan right? right it was it basically was like oh we already know that we don't like paganism and we already so there's this icon and Pan, who's like this forest nymph, male forest nymph right. with like a huge cock who runs around and that's Satan. Right. So Satan was built in the image of paganism, which was the enemy right. to the church. Absolutely. Which is why, you know, to bring it back to the, the cat in my book, there's so much negative associations with the cat because it was associated with pagan religions um, because there were so many pagan religions who deified cats or other kinds of bigger felines, you know? So of course, Christians are going to say, well, then that's the devil too. Right, of course. We'll know? lump that in yeah. because that's, if anything is a threat to our religiosity, right. it's immediately evil. Right. And it all ultimately goes back to, you know, their uh, any sort of political or religious fascist identity, making sure that others, that individuals don't have their power. Right. right. And obviously women have been the oppressed group. Right. <laughs> right. For a long, long time. Yes. Yes. I want to, I earmarked um, something that you wrote in this and I really just love it. Um, I, I think it was in the Atlantic where I read it, where it was talking about the crazy cat, lady mm. parasite mm -hmm. the cat parasite i remember when that came out actually i think i was listening to it on npr a few years ago and <laughs> weird flex of me being super intellectual <laughs> um and at the end and you talk about the studies of like you know what are we even saying here what is the diff you know there so many people have cats right like how do we then put what is the difference between the cat lady and the crazy cat lady? Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of this, you write, um, this leaves us pretty much back where we started. Science, like culture at large, isn't immune to the misogynistic mindsets that continue to propagate stigma against single women and their cats. But thanks to feminist and queer theory, there is a way out of this mess. It only requires removing men from the equation entirely. And I was like, I read that and I was like on the subway and I was like, fuck yes. <laughs> so what do you, what is, what does that mean? How can we like work with that in a tangible way? Well, in the context of the book, what I was, what I next go on to talk about is the lesbian cat lady or the queer cat lady archetype, which is viewed so differently because, um, there's just much less stigma uh, for queer women and lesbians loving their cats historically versus 
straight women because they should be uh, projecting that love onto men or using that time and energy to raise children or raise more children. Right. So, yeah, I think when you, not to be some sort of like feminist separatist or, uh, I don't know, misandrist or whatever. I mean, maybe a little bit, but. um, (laughs) I'm here with you. Um, that when you conceive of all these ideas, if you take men out of the equation, it's a very different situation, right? <laughs> yes. So. Yes, definitely. But then again, I wouldn't have anything to write about, would I now? No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I write about so many things that aren't related to men. But I think given that long running male dominance in our culture and the lack of bodily autonomy for so many women and feminine folks and the hatred of femininity on whosever body it is expressed upon, you know, I, I think, uh, there's 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 so much to dig into. Yes. You can't ignore gender. It's just there. Yes. So I'd love I, to be post gender. I know we're going there one day, but we're not there yet. Right? Totally. And I think that it's um if we just jump past the the fact that we are not in a post gender world, it actually is quite a disservice to right. talking about um all of these generations of uh persecution and oppression and yeah. the women's women's, women's sexuality, women's issues, women's bodies have never been taken seriously. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same thing as people who are like, I don't see color. Well, that's a great privilege to think that race uh, and ethnicity doesn't impact the way you live in the world and the way systemic. uh, Right. And that our history textbooks haven't been, you know, we read different textbooks than our parents did. People younger than us are reading different textbooks than we read. I I really do hope so. But, you know, I, the other day I was talking to somebody and I, they were telling me something and I was like, Oh, that's interesting mythology. And they were like, that's history. And I was like, Mm. what's the difference between history and mythology? Well, yeah. I mean, who's writing, who's writing it? I mean, there is history at a certain point becomes a story, right? Yeah. Like his story, his story. Like I is like Johnny Appleseed. Like what the fuck story is that? (laughs) Like, is that a real story? Is that history? I don't think so. No, that's it's a, a ridiculous. Tale. It's a tall. It's a ridiculous story. Why do I even know it? Why is it in my head? I don't yeah. know. But it's, you know, we, I think that it's so important to be an active participant of the way that we receive information. Oh yeah, and absolutely. To be critical of of knowing that just because something is, you know, in a history textbook or um, it's in or it's being told, you know, through an oral tradition, mm-hmm. like the really you know, what is the difference? Yeah. And, and that's what I try to do in some of my work is undress these ideas that we take for granted. Oh, black cats are bad luck. Why? You know? So without, like, without spoiling, um, what people will definitely be reading, can you tell us a little bit about the history of black cats? Oh, sure. So basically for a very long time, the color black is associated with night and the unknown. And the first time you actually have, but in a lot of ancient cultures, it's also life-giving force, the womb or something like that, you know? So it's not always a, just a negative. There's a lot more than binary thinking, um, in the ancient world, but you know, when it comes to, uh, more Abrahamic religions, we get more into binary thinking, but, um, by the time of the ancient Greeks, I forget, I put the year in there. There's a play written about a uh, an ill-omened flash of lightning and a black cat crossing the street. Something sort of associating those two together. So then you first have this idea of like the black cat being negative. But 
it really takes So on. it was like a a literary illusion. Yeah. Like, from- <laughs> like it was in a play. So it's kind of funny, but you know, to go to the ancient Greeks and stay there for a bit, the reason why we have this negative association with cats uh, in some ways, some scholars say, is because of Aristotle, who wrote that the female cat is peculiarly lecherous in the history of animals in the fourth century BC. And he's writing about all kinds of different animals and their mating habits, whatever, very straightforward. And then there's some added judgment when he's talking about female cats because they make noise when they have sex and and on their sluts, et cetera. Who knows? But- from that, that goes into common wisdom. And then come, you know, here comes the Christians and there is that perversion of pagan uh, belief systems. You know, there were cat goddesses in ancient Egypt and in uh, in Chinese mythology and Norse mythology. So you take that, put you know, and flip it on its head. So then you get this idea of the satanic cat that by the first millennium, you have a lot of uh, stories of satanic cats or cats being uh, Satan's form on earth doing evil deeds and particularly black because black is associated with the devil and the unknown and night. So you have that bad luck thing from the Greeks, but then you really have the satanic <laughs> side from the Christians. And the, by the time the early modern witch trials are happening, you have so many tales of witches having feline familiars in the English trials or throughout Europe, you have um, witches taking the form of black cats uh, to do their evil deeds. So that um, has not really gone away, that association with evil and black cats. And it persists today. As I mentioned in the book, I was telling a neighbor in my building that I was getting a new cat. And she said, well, I hope it's not black. Like not <laughs> as a joke. It wasn't a joke. And I I was like, oh shit, I got to write about that. Because <laughs> yeah. it's so weird how it persists. Like you said, we have so many ideas about what's, you know, what's right and wrong and what's evil or good. or And we don't, a lot of us don't even stop to think why. And there's so much more to unpack always. What about the fact that we also have like, is it, it's the three headed dog who yeah, is also, yeah. right. Who also is, he's the gatekeeper, mm-hmm. right? So what, why didn't dogs get, I mean, wolves are yeah. transformative. You're right. And dogs were um, in the witch trials as well. There were black dogs were often a form witches would take. And there were dogs that were hanged in Salem, for example, as part of the witch trials. That's just horrible. Yeah. But it is the feminine aspect um, in my take, in my readings, my understanding that made the cat uh, far more diabolical and, 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 and hated and also cat behavior. I mean, dogs in the end live to serve and patriarchy and if we live if you agree which i hopefully you do that we live in a patriarchal society um not you i meant the listener <laughs> um then that would be a mind fuck yeah right <laughs> you're like uh, excuse, uh, excuse me, me. <laughs> that's not a thing um but yeah and and patriarchy like thrives on domination and subjugation so what would be more beloved by patriarchy than an animal who just you know, loves to be at your beck and call and you train it and it does your bidding. Right. We'll never do that. Yeah. And we, I mean, just thinking about recent American politics, we have the dogs had been such a big, uh, they were characters in the white house at different points. Yeah. Right. Were were there any presidents who had known cats? Yes. And I had actually a very funny, uh, conversation with some audience members at one reading recently. It was in DC actually. And uh, Bill Clinton had a cat, Socks, 
or right. Chelsea Clinton. And then, you know, someone else raised their hand and we're like, yes, because, you know, only sluts have cats. <laughs> there was a whole, like, terrible <laughs> conversation about Bill Clinton. Uh, it's so complicated. Unfortunate sexual yeah. uh, habits. So <laughs> it yeah. all comes back to sex now. But yeah, that's the only cat I can think of because it's not very, it's not like thought of as a strong, masculine, powerful animal. And that's America's all about that shit. Right. right. And it was very much, I would say, in that sort of like 1950s, uh, you know, white checkered house, suburban dream, American, like you have your Lassie Rover <laughs> checkers. Yeah. We don't have the archetypal American cat story. No, no. So of course it, of course it lives more within the margins. Mm -hmm. So what, in terms of like when someone cat calls, mm -hmm. right? And that is also obviously the name of yeah. your very, very clever title of the book, right? The cat call <laughs> in and of it, like that complicates things even more, right? Mm -hmm. Because the cat call is actually the objectification when you're walking down the street and you're being cat right. called. Um, and you become the cat. Yes. And then the cat sort of loses her own, she, she sort of is forced into this sexual identity, whether or not she even asked to be, but perhaps that is just indeed what the cat has always had to deal with at large <laughs> is that the cat has always just been, we've imposed narratives on yeah, her. Yeah, we absolutely have. <laughs> um, and there's so much to dig into there, but um, with the title, I particularly wanted to talk about that idea of the cat call and then flip it on its head. Basically that the cat calls to me to write this book and to us to listen more deeply to her story in a way. So that that's how I viewed it. And um, it is funny though, that the, you know, the gendering of, of cats and in our language, um, catty, pussy, kittenish, you know, cougars, like sex kittens. It goes on. It's crazy. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Yeah. And then we of course have that person who said grab her by the pussy. Right. Right. And we have the pussy hat and, and I then talk we about have the all pussy hat. the complexities of that in, in the book as well. Yes, you do. So, um, for our listeners, what, where do you stand on the pussy hat? I think in terms of the cat archetype. It's very fascinating that the cat ears became associated with this movement uh, against misogyny, against sexual assault, against everything that the the right and the Republicans and Donald Trump stood for. Um, on the other hand, uh, it is cissexist in some ways because it's sort of grounding it in vulvas or vaginas, which are pussies and only had by some women. So there's that aspect. I know people were um, upset about, and I think the pink, some people don't like the the gendering and all that, but it goes with the, the cat archetype. It's almost like if it was done in like sort of more ironic, sarcastic knowing way, but I feel like a, there was not so as much discussion about all the ways it failed you know, um, so I think it became a subject of ridicule and it was sort of seen as fluffy, you know, 
<laughs> not to use more cat adjectives, but <laughs> like not something that had the kind of bite and force to uh, hit back against the actual atrocities that were heading towards uh, yes. America. So yeah, it's just complex. And then, and then there was association with it and white feminism. And yes. I talk about uh, one author um, who ta- who saw the pussy hat on Harriet Tubman statue and how that made her feel as a woman of color and a feminist. And there's just so many uh, things to unpack about the pussy hat, but regardless of how, where you stand on it, like it's, it was cat iconography that brought everyone into some sort of uh, aesthetic unity, at least in 2016, which is fascinating. To yeah. Me, that yeah. The cat is still so powerful in that, in that sense as a, as a cultural symbol Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's all of these things are, are so complex. Right. And, and, and I love that your work sets it up in that way. You know, it's, we, and, and even, you know, another term that comes up in this book, but then also was very much featured in your last work is the word slut. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a very complicated word. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I'm i really personally not sure how I feel about it mm-hmm. because sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm totally, uh, I'm, I'm a fervent feminist and I believe anyone should be able to identify and reclaim whatever they would like. But for me, when I was in my early adolescence exploring my sexuality, that w- term was used to define me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I attempted to reclaim it by defining myself as it, but it really came from a very damaged and sad and pained place. Yeah. Um, so even though I would go around calling myself a slut, right. it wasn't, you know, if I really, me and my therapist yeah. and all of my years now and being able to look back, peel it back. And it was, it was because of pain. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's complicated, right? It's a complicated word. And and now, you know, so many of my peers and colleagues, um, you know, are proud to call themselves sluts and I'm proud that they are proud, but I still also am, um, you know, I, I, I want to, I guess in my personal stake on it is I want to make sure that we're doing it for the right reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. I write about this in Witches Let's Feminists a bit about that there is such a trend to reclaim language like there was the Pussy Grabs Back show, you know, after the tape came out in 2016. And then uh, all the kind of, um, you know, reclaiming or taking words from oppressors and then flipping them around. And that's like all powerful and great in one sense, but it's only one step. And also I would hope the next step is like creating our own language that never had the vestiges of like pain and trauma. Yeah. Because I think you're absolutely right. And not everyone has the, you know, I would say it's a privilege to be able to use some of these words because they can be so triggering or can be used against you in such horrible ways that have real effect on your, your mental, physical, you know, economic health and safety, right? Yes. So it's not just so simple, just like the pussy hat, all this stuff is just so complicated, you know? And mm-hmm. I think it can be simplified in a way that's then made fun of by people who don't understand that complex process, you know? Like I've seen so many pieces like talking about the slut walk or whatever, and it's just like, they're dumb girls in their underwear, just, you know, and I understand how you can misunderstand the complexity of these issues. And so that's like one problem I would say just 
saying, yay, I'm reclaiming a word. You know, there's so much more to it than that. But at the same time, not everyone wants to be a gender theorist and sit around. Exactly. Like right. spending hours of the minutia that it takes to dig through all that. Like, I feel I do this for a job and I still don't feel like I do it enough. I'm always thinking, oh, there's more time I need to spend unpacking these things even deeper and my own ideas about, God, it's exhausting. Yeah, so, totally. It's exhausting to be so conscious. It is, right? And there's some folks of a certain you know, persuasion, if they're born a certain way, get to maybe not think about what they do so much and their identity so much. And that's a privilege in a way, right? Totally. So Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, right? <laughs> in, some, in some ways. So I don't want to overdo it and overthink everything, but I also feel like if I I have the ability to, you know, do this work, then it's on me to do it. And maybe I can like condense it and share it in more bite-sized ways for people who don't have the time and energy or effort or privilege to do the work. Right. Totally. Yes. But I think it's great that you shared that about slut because so often now I think it's such a trend to be hundred percent behind it, like all for it. And I had a website called Slutist for like six years and that was you know, we talked about the nuances, but a lot of people just at first glance at me are like, yeah, slut everything, you know? And I'm like, well, there's the dark underbelly. There's another layer in there, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not all fun and like reclaiming, you know, and, and, uh, and joy and whatever. Right. I mean, when I was 13, 14, growing up in New York, the choice for me to lose my virginity was because I felt so much pressure to, at that point, just be a slut. Mm -hmm. You know, I was so, I already was going down that road. Yeah. And I was a punk kid who, you know, was not going to school and who hated authority. So it was like, yeah, I'm a slut. So I'm going to do this. And it was like, I had to prove that I was of that ilk. Yeah. Right. And totally now right. I would, there's still some things that I, I like about that 13, 14, 15 year old yeah. version of myself because I was really a badass. Yeah. But I like, I, I would now looking back, I would like for her to have been empowered rather yeah. than subjected to, um, to sort of being the identity that others were sort of, that I felt expected to be. Yeah. You know? I, I had a lot of reactionary slutty behavior myself. I went to an all girl school and that was, um, what you were supposed to do. It was like super slutty was the most popular, you yes. know, but you didn't, it was like for, you know, it reminds me of that book, Female Chauvinist Pigs. Like it was, it was sort of like in a performative way and not necessarily just for yourself. You know, it was f not caring about how your body was used and by whom. Right. And I can see now there's like totally another way to conceive of slutdom, which is so awesome and empowered or whatever. And I didn't know fucking anything when I was that age either. It was all some sort of like performative sluttiness. And yes, I, I yes. Went, I went to public school for 11th and 12th grade because some bad things happened at my private school. And let's just say uh, the cops came to my house during a party and all these senators' kids were arrested. I grew up in DC and like there were drugs and sex and it was bad and I actually had to leave the school because I was Whoa. like, I can't, can't do this anymore. But the funny thing is that public school um, was co-ed, of course, and this it was not cool to be a slut anymore. Like, and I, I totally saw this new world where there are actually girls who are like, oh, I don't do that. Like, it's cool not to have sex. It's cool not to, you know, want to have orgies on the weekend, you know? <laughs> like, it was like, whoa, this is fascinating. And I think, uh, yeah, I relate a lot to that. And I think that's still a thing that goes on so much because of, 
your brain is not developed when you're that age. Like, how would you even be able to know, you know, what you want, what your desires are versus like what the world is telling you to desire and all that. I'm still figuring it out now. Totally. Right? Yes, absolutely. And then of course now kids are growing up with social media, which yeah. is a whole other. I feel so bad for that. <laughs> I do too. I mean, I, I, I don't know how I would have been able to function with that, nope. you know, because you could at least still turn off some of that. Yes. When you would get home. Oh yeah. Totally. I mean, I was still on AIM, like oh, cybering, like, oh. don't get me wrong, but <laughs> I had cyber sex before I had real sex. That was- oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, I, I definitely, um, had cyber sex with people who I hope now are in prison for pedophilia. Oh God. Like I was, I was on beanie baby chat rooms legit. (gasps) And this is what, this is what I would put in. I would, it was like star tilde star tilde, um, Maya slash 16 uppercase, lowercase oscillating, uh, Hawaii, was my wow. identity. I was 16 year old Maya from Hawaii. Cause I was like that, that was yeah. like my, that was like who I thought was me like so hot. Yeah. I was legit just like a horny 10 year old in my own oh way. My cat, God. catfishing yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> cat. Totally. <laughs> oh my God. Catfishing. Catfish. I didn't even put that in the book. Oh my God. <laughs> Catfish. Next Interesting. time. Next time. <laughs> and, but also, you know, who was on the other line was right. probably some like very, very, very scary people. <laughs> I guess there's also something, um, to speak to like what it means to also be a little girl kid who is going through puberty and like navigating all of these things is, is also kind of part of what the story is here. I also remember at the time that I was in middle school, Josie and the Pussycats Mm -hmm. came out. So there was a whole other cat ears expression when I was in middle school as well. But you know, what would you say to, I, I, you have students, but they're obviously college aged, 18, 19, it's yeah. still pretty young. Yeah. What, how do you speak to people who are in their adolescence now trying to navigate this? Hmm. Well, it's in the context, obviously of like a feminist theory, intro to as it should class. be though. <laughs> yeah. Right. But we have really good conversations. Um, and I think it's because it's grounded in like texts, like they're reading bell hooks and they're reading, you know, uh, stuff from the feminist porn book and um, female chauvinist pigs and all kinds of, and older things too. They're reading like the feminine mystique to see like what kind of ridiculous stuff was being said in the, you know, the early sixties about women and women's bodies and sex or whatever. So I think grounded in that, um, I think everyone just wants to feel like they're okay, you know, and they have agency over their body and they can make choices unfettered, but no one has that obviously. So I think it's really just combating shame and the best way to do that is talk about it. So I feel like that's what ends up happening is everyone has sort of different views about, you know, how they identify uh, in a sexual world and in addition to their sexual identity and orientation and all that, but, and how do they, is it feminist or not to do this or that? And all those things, you know, that we can get caught up in, but maybe just like the destigmatizing and like facing shame head on by sharing and not being afraid is the number one thing I feel. Yes, and I think that that's also what, likely differentiates us from past generations mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if my mom, my mom, I don't think listens to this podcast. <laughs> if you are listening, mom, let me know. But I, <laughs> I think that she would be very upset if she heard me having just 
said when I lost my virginity yes. on a podcast. And I don't think, and we've talked about it, you know, over yeah. dinner before. And I told her that I had a very, you know, complicated relationship with sex yeah. when I was younger. But I think if she knew that I was telling you yeah. and that was being broadcast to totally. all of the listeners, that would be, she would be like, oh, like, oh my yeah. God, Elisa, like how could you announce that about right. yourself? That's private. It's That's private. For it's you private. In the dark. Yes. In and closed I, room. Right. And I think that that is actually like a big issue. Yeah. Like I think that that is a, a really big piece of what has been missing all of these years. Yeah. Um, we as need to talk about this stuff. Right. And, and actually people, uh, you know, I think about the me too movement, that moment in 20, was it 20? I don't even know. 2017. Yeah. A lot now. And that sort of broke. Um, I think that there was a lot of good that came out of it. And then there was also a backlash to it right, as well. And that's still happening. Right. Because I still think that we, we didn't really nail the process of talking about it. Right. And that's, and I guess that'll take years and years because it's yeah, yeah. been in the dark and been so uh, silenced and perverted not to like make some dumb double entendre for so long that people don't know how to, you know, talk about it. But I will say like in my class, it's nice to hear when I was that age, I would never have thought in a classroom setting when I went to school and I went to the same school, the new school. Oh, that's so, a mindful. And it's a, like, yeah it's a very liberal, open-minded weirdo school. <laughs> and I mean that in the best way, but almost every student shares really personal things that don't leave the room, but still I would never have talked like that or been able to. And everyone's sort of comfortable saying, yeah, in my high school, you know, sex was thought of like this, and this is where we got our sex ed and there wasn't enough. And I thought it should have had this. And my mom says this, you know, they, everyone shares. And that's clearly, so if you look at that, then you're, you know, the problem with all the stuff you're talking about with me too, is those are also older people, right? Right. Often. Right. And people of privilege. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm hoping that, and it's just one class, obviously at a, at a liberal school, but I think also there's Microcosm, something- Microcosm, macrocosm. Right, there's yeah. something also about social media, yeah, oversharing, quote, whatever that means, but- the idea of expressing yourself so much all the time in your thoughts and feelings and opinions, you hope that also means there are, there is less shame attached to all those things you're not supposed to express or you were not supposed to, as you know, we grew up thinking. Maybe. Right. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think, I think that that is very hopeful and I, I would definitely encourage people to just continue to always tell yeah. their stories, even if they're not conclusive. I think that one of a, a very recent, um, epiphany that I had relating to my own, uh, relationship with feminism is that I'm allowed to change my mind. Yes. And Thank goddess, <laughs> and that is, um, is, is something that I didn't even realize how meaningful and significant that was, um, until very recently. Yeah. And there's sort of a trend in like purity, purity politics, sorry. And like, cancel culture or whatever to have to be a hundred percent right all the time and fear that, you know, changing your mind or your thoughts or learning a new thing, you know, because there's, you know, and rightfully so there's a backlash. I think people are in a lot of pain and there's a lot of trauma that so many people experience in different ways that, 
it all comes out sideways in different ways, you know, but I think that idea of changing your mind and learning and growing is so important. And we don't talk about that a lot. We talk about it as if like you should hatch out of an egg, knowing all feminist thought and theory and how you think about every subject in the best possible way, you know? Yes, absolutely. And, but so much of the process is the process of, of unlearning and learning and unlearning yeah. and learning and changing one's mind. Yeah. This, it came to me in very, in a very personal way when, uh, a few years ago I was involved with somebody who was, that this was not a great guy. Yeah. And at the time when I was with him, I was like into him and I have a friend who lives in Europe and I saw her when I was with him and I was saying how we had this connection, blah, blah, blah. And the next time I saw her a few months later, when she came back, I was saying how toxic and horrible mm. and manipulated I had been. And she was like, well, you, that wasn't what you were saying last time. And I was like, I changed my mind. I mean, I like, yeah, took, I was in a toxic relationship. Of course I couldn't see that I was being, like manipulated. Absolutely. <laughs> like I was, it was, I was, my perspective was distorted and that then opened up that kind of broke through a whole other way of realizing like, wow, like changing one's mind is, is empowerment. You know, the ability to think about something from a different point of view and to explore that is like, that is, and that is like reclaiming your whole narrative, you know? Yeah. And it, it's reclaiming like the, the nature of truth, right? You know, exactly, and right and wrong from that really binary, rigid uh, understanding of the world. Which there's a lot of things that are clearly right or wrong. You know, there are definitely things, but then there's a lot of other, especially feminist issues. You know, when you read more and understand more, there's so much more nuance. And yeah, of course, you'd always be changing. Like I always think about like, how will I change my books? Like, I hope I get a 10 year or a 20 year. If anyone cares, you know, do I get to write a little intro? Like my favorite thing is to read old feminist texts and then see those authors write the intro 20, 30 years later and say what they thought, you know, then versus now what they would change. You know, I love seeing that growth. Yes. You know? Yes. And I don't want to like, disparage what they originally thought. And a lot of it's like in the seventies and they write stuff and you're like, Oh my gosh, I roll. But I'm reading this 30 years later. Of course it's totally different. And the culture is different and they're writing in their own time, you know? Right. And we only learn through history. We yeah. only learn through time, not the history. That's the mythology, but the right. history of the future of yeah. time passing and yeah. how things play out. And through experimenting with, um, to see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And I, to be mindful of that process. I totally agree. Like with uh, the whole Me Too movement that's come out, I think a lot of things that happened to me, I was like, oh, th that's fine. It's no big deal. That's just what happens to you. Yes. And the more people are talking about this, the more I'm like, oh, yeah. Like not like I want to go back and be way more upset about something, but it, you know, it's coming to terms with certain things that are like, oh, that's not okay. That's not how things should be. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, it's, uh, yes, uh, completely. It was, you know, it, it was in the timeline of, you know, this, the example I gave of my friend coming back and me saying, no, it was mm. a horrible dynamic was also pre and post me too. And yeah, it, yeah. and then when I think back of some of these relationships that I've had, these experiences that I just thought were normal, yeah. it's like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing normal about that. And also like I take accountability for the things that I've done, but like there's a lot of things that 
I think just women sort of, you know, it's like, yeah, of course you're in college. You're going to maybe get date raped. Yeah. Like that's what happens that's if you're in a sorority. Rape. Rape, but like is when a stranger jumps out of the bushes. Exactly. But like, right. no, like all of these yeah. leave are, are traumas, yeah. you know? Yeah. They, and they are, they're not normal and it's not no. okay. <laughs> and that's another thing I see from young students. Like they have so much of a better grasp on like what's okay and not okay. Like the idea of consent. I didn't know what consent was in high school school and college definitely not it's just like oh if i'm wasted and someone wants to have sex and it like, seems it's implied yeah. that it's going or there if you go out on a date with someone you just gotta do it yeah like, yeah right they're gross right i mean like <laughs> right like you don't want to waste their time right right of like any gender i feel like i've gotten in this situation with men and women being like oh i guess they want to do it so i'm gonna do it <laughs> totally and like or it was like uncool to not want to just be hundred percent down to fuck all day, every day. <laughs> I'm like, no, some days it's not, it's okay to not want that. Right. You know? And like, I, I think that reclaiming sex without necessarily having intercourse be oh, the, yeah. like the, I guess like the end all be all is also something that I've been really interested in thinking about because I, you know, we were just before we were talking on the microphone, like I started watching Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was eight. I am like someone who loves like sexual imagery. I am. Yeah, I have a, a very pervy taste in, in culture. Yeah. <laughs> Polyester was my favorite movie yes. when I was 13. But I, you know, I don't think that being someone who's interested in sex and sex politics and um and sexual empowerment need, means that you need to be, you know, having sexual intercourse. Yeah. All the time. Absolutely. <laughs> you can be totally asexual and enjoy sexual content. You know what yes, I mean? Right. And I think that that's something, and I'm really glad to hear that your students are, seem so thoughtful. Something I get a little worried about is like the sex magic movement mm. that's happening right now, because it is, um, I think that it's great to use sex as a vessel for mm -hmm. energetic exchange. But when you have sex with someone else, you are also it, it sharing energy. Oh, cause I, yeah, I talk and do a lot of sex magic myself, but it's only masturbatory mm -hmm. sex. It magic. should be, because in my opinion, it should be I masturbatory. I have not yet found a sexual and magical partner I would be down with doing that. Cause I think you're right. It is dangerous and it's a lot of energies that you're not you're in, not in control of and how can you you know make sure of the consent in those situations if they know exactly what you're doing right and like and right and you know? like if we flip it on its head and you as you know just sort of to be more normative about it if it's like a female who's doing sex magic and she's having sex with a male partner like it's it's irresponsible to not tell your partner that you're doing magic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. With their cum, you know. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you got it. You got to tell them. Right. So unless you're in a partnership that is together, yes, creating a collective, it's you. Right. You should not be performing sex magic through intercourse. Right. Or don't put your menstrual blood in someone's coffee. Yeah. Without it's it's not cool. <laughs> it's not cool. 
Yeah, put it in your own coffee. Right, it's a different time because all those old school sex magic books. You know, I love reading all the things. You know, uh, those like this the pulp seventies books. Yeah, yeah, all the spell work and stuff, and it's all like stealing people's pubic hair, and like it sounds fantastic. But and most of them are written by men too, which is amazing. When like I mean, not amazing in the ironic way. Yes, yes, you can't see the eye roll right (laughs) in the audio. But um, I'm thinking of Louise Hubner too. Her, uh, her like sex magic album, you know, that uh, has all that psychedelic music. Oh she, yes, 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 all yes, those, yes. Like sex magic spells, and it's it's you know like take your lovers, you know, semen, and exactly like you were saying, you know. Yes, it's it's not cool. No, not cool. But it's I think that sex magic, um, using orgasm as a way to channel and direct your energy, fucking amazing. Um, doing that, you know, being a, a witch of 2019, soon to be 2020, who is doing that with your casual sex, not so good. Yeah. You know, separate those things. Yeah. Be careful. Be careful. Yeah. Um, because sex is complicated and emotional. Absolutely. Yeah. And as someone who, who's done some really dumb love spells, you know, back when I was young oh, and man. saw things work out in very weird ways. Be careful. I have goosebumps with. and I am with you. Um, to anyone out there who has worked with La Flamme, uh, I definitely advise against. I had a client a few years ago um, who I had told her, I was like, I do not think we should do this. I do not want to do La Flamme. It's not a good idea. And she was really wanted to. And I was like, oh, great. If you have the, if we're going to do, I'll do it. And now, you know, three years later, she's like, we shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I'm like, I fucking know it's, it's not to be done. Yeah. But I guess you can't stop people. So whatever you want to do, just do it knowing there will be consequences. Right. Do it knowing that when you are, uh, will you're, when you're doing magic that has a, another person involved that you cannot control the way that that is going to unfold. Right. So if you're ready for anything, quote unquote, it will be anything. Right. And if you (laughs) want someone to be obsessed with you, it may end in a restraining order. Yeah. So yikes, (laughs) I think that's really good. And I think, um, something I haven't thought about enough or said enough when I, and I'm not a, I'm a practitioner in my own life, but I don't like give advice that much. Like I'm a a writer of history and pop culture and politics, whatever, you know, but I feel like it's good to have these like disclaimers because I think a lot of contemporary witchcraft stuff for like newbies, it's a lot of like, do this, do that, whatever. But there's not as much, be careful. And I'm really realizing, yeah, that we really need to make sure to say that, right? Yeah. People who have no idea, don't do any studying, see an article in, you know, Teen Vogue or whatever. It's so awesome. That's where this information is, but it's like, maybe read that article and then read a bunch more books and then maybe find someone to study with, you know? Right. And like ask a lot of questions and just challenge everything and know your sources. And there is, I'm so grateful um, that we are having this esoteric revival movement, but obviously there's going to be a lot of um, less thoughtful uh, yes. literature and sources and right. publishers who are like, let's churn some yeah. shit out. Publishers don't know. Publishers don't care. They're like, oh, there's a movement. I don't know. You have a large Twitter following. Twitter sells. Let's put those together and write a book. Yeah, it's it's really hard to know. Even for me, like I have to 
remind myself to like read really carefully. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this person's super cool, you know, but I don't know. I got to read between the lines to really know. Yes. Yes. But I think, I guess like if there's a rule to follow, the rule would be like the more that somebody uh, isn't didactic, like probably the safer they are to trust, you know, the more that somebody like you, like with this book and, and your last book presents information, right? Here's a lot of stuff to think about. Yeah. And like, you know, you as the reader are empowered and have the agency to put the dots together for yourself and see what this means. I think that that is, that's cool, you know? Thank you. That's a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. I never want to be didactic because what the fuck do I know? You know? Well, I mean, when we go into didactic, then starts to suddenly creep into patriarchy. It totally hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, listeners will know that I keep talking about how I'm scared that, um, you know, I be wary of cults mm-hmm. and not a cult, but mm-hmm. C-U-L-T's mm-hmm. right now because the energy is also quite right for yes, that at the moment. to uh, harness that and use it in damaging ways. I see it in little pieces now. I'm starting to see it more. I don't, I wouldn't say that I can, I'm not, not so much where I'm ready to fucking call someone out and be like, do not follow along this person's journey. But I think that I see more and more of this, like pay this money for this workshop and your problems will be solved. And that is the, um, that is like the early foundation of how people build cults. Absolutely. And we have to be very careful. Yeah. Cause they're looking for people who are traumatized, who need yes. help, who need love, who need community. And- yes. Yes. And it's, um, you know, when we look back historically, what else was going on in the last time that astrology and witchcraft was popular in the seventies, we also had th- some of the most horrendous cults in uh, the 20th century. Oh, I never thought about that correlation. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jonestown was yeah. at this time. The Manson family was at this yeah. time. And those were all the, sort of the, you know, they had these dynamic figureheads. Um, and when we are in a society where we can't, you know, we have a creepy ass administration mm-hmm. and we can't trust them, we look for guidance. Yeah. As people, that's just what we do. So then writers and thinkers um, like yourself, I think presenting information and encouraging people to think for themselves, that really is the way to navigate a weird political time. It's not by then swapping Trump for another egomaniac. Totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. I I couldn't be better said. Yeah, I totally agree. So where can we find you and, and how can we continue to follow your journey as you navigate? Yes. The Um, catwalk. Yes. Uh, (laughs) My website is just my name, K R I S T E N S O double L double E.com. And then on Instagram is mostly where I do things. Uh, Kristen Corvette, that's like the car, but with a K. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, that's, that's what's happening. And there's another book on the horizon. What? And yeah, I'm just, I'm a Capricorn. I told, you know, that's, that's what I got to do. What is your, uh, (laughs) do you know your rising and moon? Yeah. 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 I'm a, uh, Gemini moon and a Virgo rising. Amazing. That's so good for communication. I suppose it is. It is. And for, for getting all of this information out into the world. 
you're you're doing the good work. Oh, thank you're you. fighting the good I'm fight. I'm trying. I need I need another uh, chart reading in my future for sure. Could, can you give us a little um, precursor of what the next book is going to be? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it will be a uh, travel guide to the early modern European and American witch hunts. So basically, if you want oh, to visit, fuck. <laughs> I just got chills. <laughs> if you want to visit significant sites uh, from those times in Europe and America, as well as if you want to hear this history through the lens of place. So I'm, I'm dealing with like past and present, me being there and also the history. So it's sort of like a, a woven uh, narrative. Uh, I, I still have the same goosebumps oh, so, from a moment ago. Good. Yeah, that's, I mean, I should have asked you that earlier no. because I'm upset. I, I feel like place is so sacred spaces yes. are so important. Yes. They carry so much energy yeah. and so much uh, significance. It's yeah. Wow. I think that that's going to be absolutely incredible. Well, thank I, you. When it, when is that going to be coming out? I still haven't heard if it, I'm thinking it's early 2021, but I mean, it's conceivable. It could be slightly earlier, but let's, I think we're shooting for 2021. Yeah. Well, we're just going to have to wait. Yeah, you will. <laughs> It'll be worth it. We're I just re read and wait and yep, watch. <laughs> I got two books for you to keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation. This was awesome. Thank you so Thank much for you. having me. <laughs>